please keep that passage open if you've just flicked it shut. Um, maybe open it up again, because uh, it'll be very handy to have it there. We're going to look really just at the first half of uh, chapter 3 this evening, um, the, the very end bit of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3. Uh, and uh, on the front of your service sheet, as Lauren mentioned, there's a QR code. You might want to scan that if you're thinking you might be interested in sending through a question. It's a different app to the one that we've been using recently um, for various reasons that I'm not going to bore you with, but you might want to get yourself familiar with that uh, so you've got time to flick through a question last minute if you would like to. Well, I recently came across a Twitter poll that was conducted mainly uh, between scientists, various scientists, who were trying to answer this question that had been posed, which they believe to be the most critical, the most invaluable, the most indispensable of all the human senses, uh, whether that be sight, perhaps, or touch, hearing, smell, or taste. Uh, and the answer was, perhaps surprisingly, touch that came out on top, at least from those who were polled for this particular question. What is technically called uh, somatosensation, which is, you can see it up there on the screen, is the, the biggest voted one, which basically is just a word that embodies touch and pain and balance, all the bodily kind of sensations wrapped into one. Uh, the thing is, as I kind of, you know, I was a bit surprised that touch was presented as the, the key one, uh, and as I surveyed other popular surveys about which is the most popular sense, it always came back as sight. Seeing is believing, people often say. If sight seems to be that one sense that we feel will likely never mislead us, that one sense that we feel most vulnerable perhaps without. Yet the truth is, I reckon, that because we're so typically dependent on sight, it can often end up being the very sense that is most easily misled and fooled. Just think of, you know, your typical optical illusions. Uh, perhaps if you're one who scrolls through whichever brand or whichever kind of social media you like, you might remember from a few years back, there was that gold dress, blue dress kind of fiasco and debate that was going on. Our sight can easily be fooled. And today's passage begins with two groups of people whose confidence that they had seen Jesus clearly actually ended up masking a failure to genuinely know and grasp who he is. An overconfidence in sight ended up masking a real failure to know who Jesus himself was. Uh, let's have a look at how that kicks off. The first two groups, uh, we'll find the first of them in verse 23 of chapter 2, the very end part of chapter 2. Uh, this is immediately following on after Jesus had turned the water into wine at that wedding in Cana, and then he'd gone on to cleanse, to cleanse, to clear out the temple. Uh, and we read verse 23. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, following on from Jesus' almost covert turning of the water into wine in the wedding in Cana, it seems that an increasing, an ever-increasing number of people had the opportunity to witness the signs that Jesus himself was performing. And yet, it seems that their seeing and believing didn't actually translate into a genuine knowledge of Jesus himself. 
It didn't translate into a mutual trust, did it? That Jesus himself was willing to reciprocate. They might have trusted what the signs that Jesus was doing, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Uh, Perhaps what was going on is what psychologists term parasocial intimacy. I don't know if you've ever heard this. If you haven't heard the term, you've probably seen the phenomenon where an over-familiarity, say with a celebrity, someone famous, is mistaken for having a genuine sense of closeness or affinity to them. You know, you see someone that you scroll through on Instagram every day, you imagine that you're closer to them than you really are. Perhaps there was some kind of sense of affinity, of knowledge of Jesus that was going on in this passage. Whatever it was, Jesus wasn't willing to own their mistaken perceptions of him. Jesus wasn't willing to own and embrace their flawed knowledge of who they thought he was. But it wasn't just the fickle public who mistakenly assumed that their being able to see Jesus translated into a genuine knowledge of him. It was the other end of the social spectrum as well, not just the the public, the, the, the popular kind of social media, so to speak, it was also the religious hierarchy who seemed to have a similar misgiving, a similar problem. Have a look at me at chapter 3, and the first couple of verses of our chapter. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Uh, Nicodemus, this member of the Jewish ruling council, expresses a remarkable confidence that what he has seen of Jesus, what he has witnessed of Jesus' signs, translated into his genuine knowledge of who Jesus is. Nicodemus says, basically, on 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 the basis of what we have seen from the Jewish ruling council, we know that you must be from God. Nicodemus is officially informing Jesus of the ruling council's assessment of him. Very nice of Nicodemus to take an evening out to go and inform Jesus what the ruling council thought of him. Kind of has an air of a tone of presumption about it, doesn't it? Perhaps Nicodemus comes at night here so that the adoring crowds don't see his visit as an official endorsement of this popular public preacher. It's a little bit hard to tell. But perceiving Jesus' popularity and public pull, the ruling council perhaps sees and knows that Jesus could be a potential rival or threat, one that they might need to manage or at least get on their side. So here we see, at the start of our passage, two mistaken ways of seeing Jesus. That have, relate, that have resulted in two misshapen ways of knowing him. Two mistaken ways of seeing him that have given birth to two misshapen ways of knowing him. Just as Jesus refused to entrust himself to the crowd's populist claim to see and know him, so Jesus also stands aloof to the council's bureaucratic claim to know who he is. Uh, have a look at how Jesus responds uh, to Nicodemus coming and saying, we know who you are. Jesus' response is there in verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God 
unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. In verse 3 here, Jesus is unceremoniously snubbing the ruling council's assessment of him. We might have expected that the ruling council was better placed than anyone to assess any evidence about the dawning of God's kingdom on earth. After all, Pharisees like Nicodemus were expertly trained in what the Scriptures said about the arrival of God's kingdom. The council were those experienced elders from amongst God's people who should have been better placed than just about anyone to have either confirmed or to discredited any reported sightings that the kingdom of God was on the move. But Jesus' assessment is that the ruling council is blind to God's work in the world. That nothing short, Jesus says, of being reborn could correct their congenital spiritual blindness. It's quite a slap in the face what Jesus is implying about their ability to understand God's work in the world. Now, I reckon that Nicodemus knows full well that Jesus isn't making any kind of bizarre biological claim here about geriatric transplants into a literal uterus. Nicodemus isn't a fool. I don't think he's confused that Jesus is speaking literally at this point. Rather, Nicodemus is just scoffing at Jesus' suggestion that an established ruling leader like himself should be instructed as if he was a newborn child, that someone who has got the years of experience and insight that lie behind him should need to go back and start again. Nicodemus isn't having any of it. Uh, Nicodemus had come to Jesus, declaring to him the judgment of the council, saying, no one is able to perform such signs unless God is with him. And in response, Jesus' own judgment is to say, no one is able to even see signs of God's kingdom unless God first enables you. Now, in our passage in the English there, it just says, no one can do this or no one can do that. But, but it's literally a paralleling phrase. Nicodemus says, no one can perform such signs. And Jesus says, hold up, Nicodemus. No one can even see the signs of God's kingdom if God hasn't first enabled them to do it. Who are you, Nicodemus, to offer an assessment of whether or not or how God is working through me? Unless God first opened your eyes, you'd have been powerless to recognise the kingdom of God if it jumped up and slapped you in the face. Now, Jesus goes on to make three further statements, each of which really challenge Nicodemus's capacity to understand who Jesus is or what he is doing. Now, have a look with me at verses 5 to 10. I'll read through the whole section and then we'll go back and see if we can spot the, the three main points that Jesus makes here. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. 
and you do not understand these things? Now, when Jesus mentions this needing to be, this requirement of being born again by water and the Spirit, he's not just there in verse 5, he's not just coming up with his own imagery, his own analogy. Jesus is alluding to one of God's promises that he had made through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, uh, it was read to us uh, a little bit earlier on this evening. Let's remind ourselves of some of what Ezekiel said. Verse 25, we'll have it up on the screen, I think. Uh, and speaking in this passage is God. He's addressing his, God is addressing His people and He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Where God's people are at their most powerless, most spiritually blind and helpless, God himself is promising to effect a change in them, to transform them so that they might live and see. Now, for a person like Nicodemus, who spent his whole lifetime seeking to prove their spiritual sight, their spiritual insight, a reminder of Ezekiel 36 would have been a bit of a come down for him. To say, Nicodemus, you're helpless until God himself initiates some work in you to give you life, to give you sight. But perhaps for others of us here this evening, words like these from Ezekiel are actually an enormous comfort. Perhaps you've been struck recently by your own spiritual incapacity to make sense of what God himself is doing, to make sense of where God's goodness fits into the way in which you're experiencing life, to understand what is good about what God does in and through you. These words are ones that Jesus reiterates, repeats from the Old Testament. God himself will give life and sight where we are helpless to bring it about in ourselves. And really, it's a similar kind of point that Jesus is making in verse 6, in the next verse, where he says that no flesh, that is, no human power or authority or cleverness, no flesh is able to give birth to something spiritual. Ultimately, it's only the Spirit who has the, the capacity to give birth to true spiritual life and insight. Only by God's own Spirit can true, genuine spiritual change be produced, either in ourselves or in others? Now, the Jewish ruling council might have exercised significant power of the flesh, that is, significant human cleverness and insight and wisdom, but they're utterly powerless to provoke or to control or to manage any genuine spiritual change, either in themselves or in God's people who they oversaw, who they ruled and looked after. Uh, and really, that's, I think, the point of the wind that Jesus speaks on the very next paragraph. Just as no one can control or direct or anticipate the wind's patterns of movement, nor can flesh, nor can humans direct, manage or control how God chooses to work through the Spirit, especially not Nicodemus and his fellow council members. I wouldn't be surprised if Nicodemus had come to Jesus, having seen perhaps something of genuine spiritual truth in him, 
and imagined that they as the council could have directed, managed and even used Jesus to bring about what they saw needed to happen amongst God's people. And Jesus says, you've got about as much chance as you do of controlling and directing or managing the direction of the wind. Uh, It's not uncommon though, is it, for people to make pretty grand spiritual claims about what they imagine they can see God doing in the world. Think about when COVID first hit off, there were a whole bunch of people who came up with their ideas about what they imagined God was doing in the world by allowing COVID to to strike us. There are those who imagine that they know what God is at work doing with climate change or with particular political movements that rise and fall, people who claim to know what God is doing in those moments. Like Nicodemus the Pharisee and the rest of the Jewish ruling council, People often claim that they can clearly see and perceive how God is at work. The thing is, typically what they see just so happens to match exactly their own agendas and concerns. A little bit suspicious how often that tends to be the case. But like Nicodemus, we often pay far too little attention to what God himself says he's actually at work doing in and through the person of the Lord Jesus. And and that's really what Jesus goes on to point out and to object to in verse 11. Have a look there with me at verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus' final very truly statement, he says, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Uh, Any time someone brings out the phrase, you people, uh, you know it's going to be uh, not not a flattering kind of comment that they're about to make, is it? Nicodemus came to Jesus back in verse 2 proclaiming, hey Jesus, we know what God is at work doing in and through you. And Jesus' response is to say, oh really, Nicodemus, you think you see what God is doing, do you? You think you know what God is doing, do you? Well, you don't seem to listen to what we say we know and what we say we've seen God doing. I think when Jesus mentions the we there in verse 11, he's speaking about himself and John the Baptist, both of whom who have testified as to what God has doing, what God has planned to do in and through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Nicodemus comes saying, hey Jesus, we know. And Jesus objects well, you don't listen to what we know and what we say we have seen. Jesus goes on to give a little summary statement, really, that describes what he knows, what he has seen, what he knows God has sent him to do. We find that little summary statement in verse 14. Uh, Have a look there together with me, verse 14 and 15. I think this is uh, the essence of what Jesus claims to know and to have heard from the Father. We read in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking about himself there, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Unusual little phrase there, unusual little paragraph, isn't it? One that's speaking, it's drawing some imagery from Numbers 21, a passage that speaks about Israel's own experience when they were leaving Egypt and heading to the Promised Land. 
Uh, we've got a picture of it, I think, of it up on the screen there. Uh, this moment in which Israel had been disobedient, they'd been grumbling against God's provision, God's care of them. And as a judgment, God sends amongst them a plague of snakes. Snakes that bite them. Uh, hundreds and thousands of the Israelites begin perishing as a result of these snake bites. And they cry out to God for mercy. And God says to Moses, make a bronze snake. Put it on top of a pole and lift that pole high in the air. And as my people are perishing, if they lift their eyes and look to that snake that you raise up, they will be saved. Their judgment will be removed, will be lifted. Their condemnation will be removed. Jesus is saying this really sums up who he is and what he has come to do. Now, looking upon Jesus, the crowds had only seen the naked signs, the miracles, the tricks that he had performed, but they didn't seem to have grasped anything of what Jesus' signs were actually pointing to, any spiritual significance. When Nicodemus and the Jewish ruling council looked upon Jesus, it seems they simply saw a spiritual influencer, someone needing to be carefully managed and controlled, perhaps even regulated or recruited to serve their own purposes. But as with the snake that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, so Jesus would ultimately be lifted up on the cross so that we might likewise look to him for life. And Nicodemus and the crowds looked to Jesus to assess him, to judge him. But Jesus says, I've come so that people might look to me to receive life. And as the following paragraph reminds us, God sent his son in the world, into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it, in order to bear our condemnation for us. And when we fail to recognize that beautiful truth about Jesus, we'll end up failing to see who he really is. When we fail to see, to recognize the beautiful truth that Jesus was lifted up to bear our condemnation for us, we'll likely mistake Jesus as a threat rather than as a comfort. And I think that's really what John is reflecting on in the final little section that we'll have a look at together this evening in this passage. Um, have a look with me at verse 19. Verse 19. I, no doubt, I think, probably at this point, Jesus is harking back to the imagery of knowing what is in people. You know, where he said, I know what's in the people who believe in my signs. He wouldn't entrust himself to them. Uh, and he, he responds by saying this. This is the verdict... Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. That's quite a sobering thing to say, especially when we remember back in John chapter 1, who is it that is identified with the light? It's God the Son become flesh. God the Son is the light of the world. And here we're being told that everyone, all people, hate the light for fear that coming close to it might expose them. Unless we see Jesus with crystal clarity, unless we understand what it is he came to do, one who cleanses us and renews us, gives us new life, as one who is held up by God to free us from condemnation 
then we'll likely prefer to remain in the darkness, in the shadows, as Nicodemus did. Fearful to ourselves be seen and known by Jesus. Fearful that his light might expose us. Uh, picture up on the screen of UV light. Perhaps you've seen uh, some crime shows or whatever where they use UV lighting to expose uh, crimes that have happened, blood that's been spilled on the carpet or whatever might be the case. UV light is that which exposes that which is shameful, dirty, dark, would rather be hidden. And I wonder if that's perhaps how some of us kind of view being known by Jesus, coming close to Jesus, this anxiety that if we get too close, His light will expose us in the kind of way that UV lighting can expose marks and dirt and that which is shameful and to be hidden. But also, uh, UV lighting can be used for other things. I I was just reading this past week of a new kind of UV lighting that had been trialled in recent months called Far UVC. I've got no idea what it stands for. You're as capable as me of Googling it later on. But this, this version of UV lighting doesn't simply expose that which is dirty and shameful and to be hidden. It also cleanses without causing harm to that which it shines upon. And friends, I think that's precisely, that second kind of UV lighting is precisely how John's Gospel wishes us to think of Jesus, the light of the world. Have a look with me at the final verse we'll look at, chapter 3, verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Or as an older NIV translation puts it, perhaps if you've got an older NIV Bible with you, that what they have done has been done through God himself. That is, I think what John is saying here, is that their coming into the light without fear has been made possible through what God has done. Their coming into the light without fear and anxiety has been made possible through the cleansing that God offers in and through the Lord Jesus, which is what the rest of the passage goes on to speak on. The second half of Uh, chapter 3 speaks about ceremonial washing and the cleansing of baptism that comes through Jesus' own ministry. Friends, once we grasp the truth that God sent His Son to cleanse us, not to condemn, we'll find ourselves able to draw close to the light, close to God in Christ, without that fear of exposure that sends us scurrying back into the darkness, fearful and ashamed. The failure of Nicodemus to grasp that this truth about Jesus, that's what his ministry was about, to to cleanse, I think is what kept him at a distance. It's what probably sparked Nicodemus to come to Jesus in the night time under the cloak of darkness. It's what prevented Nicodemus from approaching Jesus except under the cover of night and darkness. And yet in the coming weeks, we're going to see people who approach Jesus not at night time, but in the full glare of noonday sun, without fear of being exposed or condemned as they draw closer to him. And friends, I hope that that's increasingly, as we work through John, the picture that we ourselves will walk away with about the Lord Jesus. One whose light isn't there ultimately to condemn and expose to shame, but to cleanse and purify.
how about we pray and ask that that confidence would be ours as well. Dearest Father, we recognise in the Lord Jesus one who is the Word made flesh, the one who brings the light of life, the light of your glory into a darkened world. Father, we ask that you might draw to our own attention those areas of life where we would prefer to scurry back into the darkness for fear of being exposed. Father, where that's the case, please restore our sight. By your Spirit, enable us to see in the Lord Jesus not one who comes to condemn, but one who comes to cleanse. That in coming to him, in coming into your light, we might be purified and find ourselves confident and bold before you without fear. We ask this in Jesus' name, for our good and for his sake. Amen.